Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Grateful Hearts and Burdened Hearts. Now, an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. You know, when Star Trek first appeared on television in the late 1960s, one of the main characters was a man named Mr. Spock. He wasn't an earthling, he was from the planet Vulcan. He was logical, he was unemotional. In fact, he found the emotions of human beings to be beneath his logical commitments. He was baffled by our emotions such as fear and sadness and physical attraction and so on. Thirty years later, there was a spinoff for television. It was called Star Trek The Next Generation. And the main non-human member of the cast there was not a Vulcan, but an android. His name was Lieutenant Commander Data. Now, emotions were a curiosity to Data, just as to Spock, but there was a difference. Data was deeply curious about human emotions. He wanted to know what it was like to be human, and so he wanted to feel. Some of us are maybe rather Spock-like in our understanding of Christian maturity. We are suspicious of emotions. We think that Christian development involves squashing all those unruly, irrational emotions within us. But the aim of the Christian life is not to obliterate emotions. Now it's true in the Bible we are warned against being ruled by our emotions. We are to be ruled by the Holy Spirit instead. But the aim is not to obliterate emotions. It is to channel the right emotions in the right direction in the right way. You know, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that you would have to eliminate if the goal of the Christian life, if the goal of Christian maturity was to eliminate emotions. You would have to eliminate the passage we're going to look at today, Psalm 126. Take a look at Psalm 126 and your copy of God's Word. This is the passage that is going to be our focus today. And in Psalm 126, we hear astonished laughter and then we hear broken-hearted crying. We hear astonished laughter as God's people consider how gracious God has been to them. And then we hear broken-hearted crying over their desire that more people would experience this graciousness along with them. Psalm 126 probably comes from the time right after the Babylonian exile. So that means 70 years before this psalm was written, that would have been the time when the, Babylon, the Babylonian army came in and demolished the temple that David, or the, the kingdom that David built, and destroyed the temple that Solomon built. And then the Babylonians took the best and brightest citizens out of Jerusalem and off into Babylon for exile. And there they were for 70 years. So in the first half of this psalm, you see the joy God's people experience as they get this opportunity to return to their own homeland. Because 70 years after the exile, Cyrus the Persian came in under the Medo-Persian Empire and he uh, destroyed Babylon and then he allowed all those that were held captive by Babylon to return back to Jerusalem. 
And at first, the, God's people are absolutely astonished at this unexpected turn of events. But then they noticed that there were a good number of their own countrymen who did not return to Jerusalem with them. Why? Not because they could not return, but because they would not return. Babylon had become a home for them. In those 70 years, they had established businesses in Babylon. They had started families in Babylon. They had built homes in Babylon. And when the people said, come home with us to Jerusalem, they said, what do you mean come home? We are home. And so the second half of Psalm 126 moves from astonished laughter at what God had done for them to weeping over those who still had not responded to what God had done for them. Now, what about you? Are you so grateful about what God has done for you that you laugh openly in astonishment at it? At the same time, are you so brokenhearted over those who have not responded to God's grace that you weep freely over their need of God's grace? These are the questions that we need to ask as we look at Psalm 126. So you'll see in your sermon notes two questions. First of all, are you grateful that God has saved you and put you in a church like this? I want you to compare your attitude toward your salvation to what we see in the first half of Psalm 126. Look at verses 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Now, like I said, by the time these verses were written, 70 years had gone by in Babylon, and many probably imagine Babylon as nothing more than a, or many imagine Zion, that is, the, the city of Jerusalem, as nothing more than a distant dream. Uh, it, 70 years had gone by, that, this means that these, these people had been little children when they had been taken by their families or with their families by Babylon into Babylonian captivity. Some of them had been born in captivity, and they had only heard from their parents and grandparents about the time when they once had a nation of their own. And they had only heard about it from prophets who had been taken into Babylonian captivity as well, such as Jeremiah. They'd only heard about all of this, but now, unexpectedly, because of Cyrus the Persian overcoming Babylon, and Cyrus unexpectedly giving them, giving them the opportunity to go back to, to Zion, to Jerusalem. Now they're heading back to all that their parents and grandparents and prophets had told them about, and they were astonished by this. But the poet says their dreamlike state gave way to laughing, and their laughing gave way to singing. And we need to be able to say what they said, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. What great things? has God done for you? For some of you, you could say, God, is, God raised me up in a Christian home where from my earliest, I heard stories, I was given lessons, I was shown examples of what it means to live the Christian life. Others of you could say, this is the great thing God has done for me. He has surrounded me with Christian friends who even when I made stupid decisions, they did not abandon me. Some of you could say he gave me a chance at a good education or a good job. Others could say he unloaded a burden of guilt from my shoulders. More than one of us in here could say, when I abandoned God, he did not abandon me, and I thank God for it. And sadly, for too many of us, we react to this goodness of God with apathy. Our lives are so filled with entertainment options, with distractions, we can't even go 
for very long at all without checking our phones, even in a worship service. We've got to check to see if there's something more interesting than God's Word, something on Instagram or Facebook that might be more interesting than that. We are people who are filled with all kinds of distractions instead of caught up in amazement at the goodness of God. And that's why where some of us need to be touched the most by the Spirit of God today is in this area of being grateful again at what God has done for us. Some of us are so filled with pessimism about the future, or we are filled with cynicism about each other, or we are filled with anger about how the world is treating us, that we are no longer filled with joy over what God has done for us. We need to ask for that. I don't know if you read about this uh, a few years ago. It was in the Wall Street Journal. It was a story about laughing clubs that have started in Bombay, India. I'm not talking about comedy clubs. I'm talking about laughing clubs. They started with a physician who uh, began to adapt um, a, a certain, certain poses in yoga, including a, a laughing uh, yoga breathing technique and posture. Here's what the journalist in the Wall Street Journal said. Dr. Uh, Kataria organized a group of five people to laugh their cares away, and now enthusiasts estimate that there are more than 100 laughing clubs around India. One recent morning, just before sunrise, the laughers gathered in South Bombay's affluent Malabar Hill neighborhood. The laughers, including tax commissioners, diamond dealers, stockbrokers, engineers, and retirees, line up in neat rows. First, they took a few stretches, reaching for their toes and rotating their waists. And then they tried a warm-up laugh, building slowly to steady ha-ha-has and ho-ho-hos to stimulate breathing. Soon the serious laughing began, with participants cavorting about, slapping each other's palms, laughing hard enough to break a sweat. Experts can master special laughs, like the silent joker laugh, make a funny face, laugh with open mouth but no sound. The low-pitched etiquette laugh, lips closed. Or the classic Bombay laugh, fill chest with air and roar. Sheth, 72 years old, says his grandchildren find him less irritable since he started laughing regularly a few months ago. He says he laughs with his teeth clenched to prevent his dentures from falling out. <laughs> One man, a gasoline dealer, a wealthy man, said earlier, I used to look down upon these people as crazy. Now he's dedicated to the regimen himself. No other activity, he says, exercises the 32 muscles in your face. Devotees say the exercises can help people shed inhibitions and build self-confidence as well as help uh, uh, patients breathe easier and smokers kick the habit. Dr. Katarina says that laughing can also alleviate high blood pressure, arthritis, and migraine headaches. Now, Hillcrest ought to be a sort of laughing club. Hillcrest ought to be a place where we get together and remind each other about what God has done for us and rejoice over that reality. And so the first half of Psalm 126 tells us, do you think that emotions are beyond you, beneath you? Do you think that emotions is, is something you need to obliterate if you're going to get into the mature level of Christian living? Far from it. We need to be as astonished and our mouths filled with laughter when we think about what God has done for us, just as these people thought about what God had done for them. But even as you're grateful over what God has done for you, you need to be brokenhearted over the fact that there are still people who are dear to you, important to you, surrounding you, who have not experienced this same grace that you have. 
So the second question on your outline is this. Are you burdened for those who still need a Savior and a church? Are you grateful that you have a Savior and a church? Are you burdened at the same time for those who still need a Savior and a church? This is the concern of the second stanza of Psalm 126. Psalm 126 is a two-stanza song. The first stanza is about laughter. The second stanza, well, let's see. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Now in verse 4, the poet says, restore our fortunes, Lord. Bring back our captives, Lord. That's another translation. And then he adds, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev was a desert region in southern Israel. It was a place where cut into the desert floor were all these ditches from wind erosion and rain erosion. And for most of the time, those ditches were absolutely dry. But a rainy season would come and fill those ditches to overflowing. Some of us, we have friends in West Texas, and we've seen on their Facebook posts what happens when rain falls and falls and falls in an area that is so flat and so dry, all of a sudden those ditches are full to overflowing. And sometimes in some places in West Texas right now, at least for a brief time, there is crisis of flooding instead of drought. Now, what this poet is saying in the second half of Psalm 126 is, Lord, like the streams in the, neg like the, streams in the desert, my prayer is that people would flood back into Jerusalem. You see, what he was describing at this point was just a little trickle of people that were leaving Babylon to go into Jerusalem and rebuild the nation. And uh, what he was praying for and was hoping for was that little trickle would become a stream, a vast flood of people heading back into Jerusalem. Why weren't they heading back into Jerusalem? Well, like I said, they were people who for 70 years had made Babylon home. It was captivity. It was being ruled by a foreign ruler over them, but it was home as far as they were concerned. Again, some of them had been born in Babylonian captivity. They had started businesses. They had built homes. They had married and given in marriage. Their kids had been born there as far as they were, concern they were concerned. That was home. Now, we can, we can imagine how that parallels our own lives as well, right? When we came into our relationship with Jesus Christ, it was like coming out of Babylonian captivity. For some of us, we didn't even realize how enslaved we were until we entered into our relationship with Jesus Christ. But then we look back and we realize that we had been captive to a worldview that had been passed down to us by songs and by an education system and by the majority of our neighbors. We've been captive to that worldview. We've been captive to addictions. We've been captive to peer pressure. We've been captive to, to this understanding of the world that isn't what we find within the Bible. We've been captive to that, but then God called us out of that into our relationship with Jesus Christ, and we were astonished at what God had done for us, but we can look back, can't we? And we can see that still in Babylonian captivity are some of our family members, some of our good friends, some of our co-workers and neighbors, and they're not as at all interested in this salvation that we've entered into. Not yet anyway. And so we need to pray. We need to ask God to do something for them that he has done for us. Our joyful hearts need to become burdened hearts. 
as we ask God to do for them what God has done for us. It was back in 1932 that Edward Hastings thought of this psalm, Psalm 130, Psalm 126, and he said, it is a mutilated act of thanksgiving, which does not awaken energetic pity for those who cannot share in it. We also have our captives who have not made a bid for freedom. By evil example or by selfishness and worldly thoughts or by mere ignorance, they've been kept from the blessings and the service which are ours. They lie about us on every hand, men and women, in whom we recognize a wealth of kindliness and valor and capacity, but they do not know God. Lord, if these might be with us, how rich the land, how wide thy kingdom would be. And so the poet gives us this prayer to pray. He desires, like the streams in the Negev during flood time, he's, he's desiring, he's praying for more people to come back from Babylonian captivity into Jerusalem. And he prays the way you and I need to pray. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Some of you remember a song you sang in your childhood with the line, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. The people who taught you that song, the people who led you in singing that song, were hearkening back to Psalm 126. It was an evangelistic psalm. It was a psalm about evangelistic work and about evangelistic praying. A lot of us may not have been aware of that when we were singing that psalm, but that's what that song was about. Now the image, of psalm, or the image from Psalm 126 is the image of a farmer going out with seed to sow. Now, most of us, if any of us, we, we, we were not raised in a, in a farming community, so maybe we don't, we're not really aware of this, but farming has always been a gamble. It's always been a risk. And what is a farmer doing when he is sowing seed? He is taking his own food. He is taking his family's own food and sowing it into the ground. He's sowing grain, grain that is used to be ground up and made into bread that can nourish him, nourish his family. He's taking a portion of that and he's going out and scattering it into the ground. And he's guaranteed anything will come from that? No. There's any number of natural disasters that could come along, too much rain, too little rain, that would keep all of that risk from coming to fruition. So he goes out taking his family's food and he sows it with concern. He sows it with a burden. He sows it in the words of Psalm 126, in tears. And yet the only person who does that is the person who at harvest time can have any hope of seeing harvest come from that. So he sows with tears, but then he comes rejoicing, bringing in the harvest, bringing in the sheaves of that sowing. Now I want you to notice the connection here. It's not just those who sow gospel seed, but those who sow with tears they will find a harvest on the other side. Those who weep as they carry out seed to sow, they are the ones who will sing joyfully as they carry out or carry in sheaves. You know, the old timers used to refer to this type of praying, this type of burden as travailing prayer. And that phrase comes from the King James Version of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19 Paul described his prayers for the Galatians in this way, I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. 
So he's, he's using that word in the King James Version, travail. I travail as if giving birth so that Christ can be born, so that Christ can be formed in you. It's the idea of agony. It's the idea of brokenness. It's the idea of desperation. Paul wasn't some emotionless Vulcan. He was passionate about his seed sowing, and he was passionate about his praying as he sowed seed. The 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said that only travailing prayer brings about prevailing witness. Here's what he said, it is not every sowing which is thus insured against danger and guaranteed a harvest, but the promise specially belongs to sowing in tears. When a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, then he is elect to usefulness. Winners of souls are first weepers of souls, he said back in the 1800s. In due time, the weeping intercessor will become the rejoicing winner of souls. There is a distinct connection between importunate, agonizing, and true success, even as between the travail and the birth, the sowing of tears, and the reaping in joy. Now, why has God arranged things in that way? I mean, he could have brought about the salvation of the world, the transformation of a family, the, the, the revival of a church. He could have done that any way he wanted to. Why did he set things up in that way? I like what Brian Chappell said in one of his books. And Brian Chappell didn't answer the question by telling us why. He just said, this is the way it is. So anybody who understands that this is the way it is will align himself with the plan of God. He says, much as an old-fashioned steam engine uses coal shoveled into a boiler to power a train, God uses our prayers to empower the engine of divine transformation. Of course he could transform our world without our prayers, just as he can make trains go with, without natural resources. But he has chosen otherwise. Knowledge of his choices keeps us mining coal and offering prayer. This emotion, this brokenheartedness about a lost world will bring you closer to the heart of Jesus than anything else. If I were to bring a microphone out into the congregation today and say, who desires to be like Jesus? I think there would be a number of people that say, give me the microphone. I want to tell you about my desire to be like Jesus. And yet, don't we remember the story from Luke chapter 19, where Jesus, upon cresting the hill and looking out over Jerusalem, did what? He wept over Jerusalem, it says in Luke chapter 19. He wept because they would not receive him. Now, was that because he was so insecure and so small-minded that he was just whining about why he wasn't more popular? No. He wept over Jerusalem because he saw ahead to the consequences of those who would not receive him. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, this time not by the Babylonians, but by the Romans. And Jesus saw this all ahead of time and he wept over those who would not receive his arrival in their midst and who would suffer the consequences because of it. If you want to be most like Jesus, you are going to weep over the consequences of those who do not receive the grace that you have received. That travail leads to prevailing. We need to recognize this importance then. It's laughter and it's weeping that is the signal not of an immature person, but of a mature Christian 
who is astonished at what God has done for him and yet brokenhearted over the fact that there are not yet more people from his family, from his school, from his neighborhood, from his team, from his workplace who want to join in that as well. And so we pray with tears, we pray with weeping that God would do for them what God has done for us. I want you to notice in Psalm 126 that it's not just one emotion or the other. It's both of them at the same time. And I've often found that this is the case, that both of these emotions are in the same human heart at the same time. It's really only those who are most astonished that God has done something for them and saving them that weep over the fact that that grace isn't been, hasn't been received by somebody else. And it's also the opposite is also true. Those who are apathetic, those who are unmoved, those who do not weep over the loss, uh, lostness of the world are those who are probably taking for granted what God has done for them. We need to recognize that Psalm 126 is two stanzas of one song. And we need to then rejoice and we need to weep. We need to let these emotions be part of our heart, part of our Christian maturity, even as Jesus showed us how to weep over the lost. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we ask him to make us people who want to feel and want to feel deeply and not be afraid of that. Maybe we need to pray something like this. Dear Lord, I realize that your word tells me to not just be swayed by my passions. I recognize then that emotion can be a dangerous thing. And emotion can be a signal of a, of a shallow heart. I mean, that's true. We've, we've seen it. Um, but Lord, forgive us for thinking that the solution then is to be always suspicious of emotions and always want to get them out of our lives. Help us to see that just as Jesus felt deeply joy and sorrow, we need to feel deeply these things too as a sign of our maturity. Help us then mature. Help us then develop in our understanding of our salvation. And so we get to the point that this poet did in Psalm 126, that we would laugh in astonishment when we think that you have done something so unexpected for us. You saved us. You rescued us. You called us out of what we now see as captivity. And you brought us into the freedom and the joy of life and the spirit. Thank you for that. But help us, Lord, also to see that until we are brokenhearted about the world, until we are grieving over the lostness of our own neighbors, our own family members and friends, we'll hardly want to pray and hardly be effective at prayer and hardly be bold enough to open our mouths and share the good news of Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, bring us to that point where we see these emotions as something not to be afraid of, but something to aspire to. Help us to see that this is the gateway into true revival in our own hearts, in our church, in our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a message titled, God's Special Meeting Place. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.